Generation Church Podcast. We hope you find this encouraging. Come visit us in South Oceanside. Find more about us at selfofchurch.com. Good morning, church. This reading is from Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 42. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message Jesus is the Messiah. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility." Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Perineus, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles, who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Praise be to God. Uh, Last year, David Verdugo and uh, Joe Porce and I, a couple of our elders, we were reading The Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Pete Scazzaro. It was a great book. And uh, in that book, he tells this story. It's interesting. It was a book, when he writes about a book, about this book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Uh, by a a doctor named Oliver Sacks. And the story is this. There's a a woman named Madeline, and she lived in a family who her entire life had overhelped her. They had overcommitted to her care and actually kept her stuck. See, Madeline, I'm going to read a little bit of this to you. Madeline arrived at St. Benedict's Hospital in 1980 at the age of 60. Okay, the age of 60, she shows up at this hospital, and she had been born blind and was born with cerebral palsy. And so throughout her life, she had been taken care of by her family, but unfortunately had been babied by her family. And what the doctor, the guy who wrote the book, Sachs, the neurologist, he noticed that as he's interacting with her, this woman was highly intelligent. And she spoke freely, she spoke eloquently, but she had no ability to use her hands. And he said to her, you've read a tremendous amount. You must be really good with Braille. And she said, no, I'm not. All the reading in my life has been done for me. I can't read Braille, not a single word. I can't do anything with my hands. She says, in fact, they're completely useless. And she held them up and said, these God-forsaken lumps of dough, they don't even feel part of me. And the doctor was startled, and he thought to himself, wait a minute, hands are not something usually affected by cerebral palsy. Her hands would seem to have been potentially perfectly good hands, and yet they're not. Could it be that they are actually functionless because she's never used them? Had everything been done for her in a manner that prevented her from developing a normal pair of hands? Madeline, after he inquired with her, had no memory of ever using her hands. In fact, he notes, she had never fed herself. She had never used the toilet by herself. She never reached out to help herself. She always left it 
to others to help her. She'd lived for 60 years as if she was a human being with no hands. This led the doctor to try an experiment. He instructed the nurses to deliver Madeline's food to her, but leave it slightly out of reach as if by accident, just to see what she would do. And he writes, one day it happened. What had never happened before. Impatient, hungry, instead of waiting passively and patiently, she reached out an arm and she groped the tray, found a bagel, and took it to her mouth. This was the first use of her hands, her first manual act in 60 years. Madeline progressed rapidly from there. She soon reached out to touch the whole world, exploring different foods, containers, and implements. She asked for clay at one point and started to make models and sculptures. She began to explore human faces and figures. Speaking of her hands, Sachs, the doctor, wrote, They were, one felt, not just the hands of a blind woman exploring, but of a blind artist, a meditative and a creative mind, just opened, finally, to the full, sensuous, and spiritual reality of the world. Madeline's artistry developed to the point that within a year, she was locally famous, known as the Blind Sculptress of St. Benedict's. Who would have imagined that such a great artist, an astonishing person, lay hidden within the body of this 60-year-old blind woman, who had not only suffered from multiple physical limitations, but who had been, quote, disabled by the overcommitment of those who thought they were caring for her. Wild story, true story. Um, Commitment is a really beautiful thing. Uh, committing to people, committing to things is a beautiful thing. Undercommitment, flakiness and all that is a really wounding thing, frustrating thing. But this story actually reveals that overcommitment can be equally damaging, maybe even more damaging in some ways that our overcommitment can create disability in the person receiving our help. Uh, it's been said that an emotionally mature adult does not do for others what they can and should do for themselves. Codependency is a relationship where someone in the relationship is doing for others what they can and should do for themselves, thus disabling them. In other words, over-functioning actually produces under-functioning in other people. And confession at the top, uh, this is me, uh, Overcommitters Anonymous. Hi, I'm Tim, and I'm an overcommitter. I'm not so anonymous anymore. And uh, the results of my overcommitment and my experience with this has been... uh, burnout, being worn out, and tragically, as I was reading this, I was convicted, my overcommitment actually can rob others of their ability to engage in the things that actually God's called them to do. And not just because I work at a church, it's because that's just how life works. We're knit together. My overcommitment, my overcommitment hurts me, and it hurts people around me, actually disables them. And, and thankfully, thankfully, by God's grace, I've grown a lot in this area, but I have sipped, I, I think, sipped the Kool-Aid of our culture, because the, the Kool-Aid of our culture is very much about overcommitment. I mean, the, the American way, the, the hose we drink from, we applaud people that overcommit. We promote people that overcommit. We love, especially in the corporate world, people have no boundaries over their personal lives. Like, and we applaud them on and like, wow, look how much they can do, which is why it's so hard to treat, because it, overcommitment masquerades as a virtue when it's not. And get this, if you're an overcommitted person right now along with me, right now you're doing too much and you're convinced you're not doing enough. That's the, that's the, the craziness of this whole thing is that you're convinced like there's still, there's still something I should be doing that I'm not doing. And so I want to submit to you today that 
Overcommitment is dreadfully unhealthy for our souls and actually for our bodies as well as we are holistic creatures, body, mind, spirit. The science affirms this. I was reading an article this week from Dr. Peter Bongiorno, and he said overcommitted people tend to run, quote, emotionally hot. In the short term, the stress hormones from all the stuff that needs to be done, the chemicals, they give us heightened alertness and energy to get stuff done. But in the long term, these stress hormones and inflammatory chemicals start to do more damage than good. They start to beat up the brain, the linings of blood vessels, and they deposit fat in places they shouldn't. I'm starting to get attention now. Here we go. They just start to deposit fat in places they shouldn't, and there's often poor blood sugar control. This is why so many diseases become more likely when we're overcommitted. Title of today's message is Help, I'm Overcommitted. Uh, We're going to look at the problem of overcommitment, what the Bible says about this in the story, how it's an opportunity for greater health for all of us and people around us, and then what's the solution for overcommitment. So last time we were together, we were in Acts chapter 5. Matt did a phenomenal job of showing the church that's explosive in growth, but also getting a ton of persecution from the outside. They get arrested, thrown in jail, all that stuff. And this angel jailbreak, if you missed it, he says, go and share this message of life. Don't let anyone stop you. And so they're preaching from in the temple and from house to house. That's what we read at the end, that Jesus is the Messiah. And things are going great. Uh, by, by conservative estimates, the church is booming in its growth. There's already 20,000 people that are part of the church at this point. But a problem arises. In, in verse 1 of chapter 6, which Allison just read, it says, But as the believers, the disciples, rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers, which um, some of your Bibles might say Hellenists, same thing, complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So... What's actually a really cool thing, they had started a daily distribution of food. That's a big deal. Um, and they're taking care of widows. Awesome. You know, they recognize, wow, these widows need help. We're going to start collecting food on a regular basis. Great thing. But it's not all good because we see discriminations entered in. And this is a really sad, tragic aspect of humanity for all time and every culture, that we somehow find a way to draw a line be on one side and then discriminate on people who are on that other side of the line. Now that line might be skin color, that line might be education, that line might be age, that line might be language like it was in this case. We find some way to justify our looking down on other people. Humans are experts at this. And here in this story, what's happening here is the, the Hebrew Jewish now Christians, converts, are discriminating against the Greek speaking Jews who are now Christians. So they're all in the church, they're all believers. But there's discrimination between these two groups. Now, the short history of this, without, not doing a, without doing a ton of work here, is that many Jews, when they were taken in captivity by Babylon or other times of exile, went to these other places. And then when the Jews resettled in Jerusalem, not all of them went back to Jerusalem to resettle and rebuild Jerusalem. Many of them stayed in the places where they had been captives at one time, or they went to other areas all over the place, and they adopted Greek. Greek was the trade language of the day. It would be like someone in another country learning English so they can get a job to be able to go internationally or whatever. And so when the Jews come back to Jerusalem for Passover, there's, there's butting of heads because some of them had spent generations and generations and generations in these other cities. They no longer speak Hebrew or Aramaic, which was the two dominant languages within Jerusalem in the synagogues and the temple. So they come back. They don't speak the language anymore. In fact, the Greek-speaking Jews had their own synagogues that spoke Greek. 
So some of them come back to Jerusalem. They speak very little of no Hebrew. And so the Hebrew Jews look down on them as like second-class citizens. Like, you want to come to our temple? You don't even speak our language anymore? And so there was, there was even permission that they could look down on them this way under Judaism. And so these ethnic Jews that speak Hebrew are discriminating against those that don't. And they feel justified in that. And that was a very pre-church experience, but unfortunately now that they've all become followers of Christ, they're bringing in all their broken cultural norms into the church and saying, well, this is how we've always done it, and we're going to continue to do that. And that was a obviously discriminatory, I mean, prejudice against widows? I'm like, guys, I, got, I mean, I'm, I, I'm shocked reading this. But hear this, this is, I think, the lesson for all of us. Gospel culture will always confront the inherited culture. It's always going to rub. It's always going to bump in. Whether you're an American or you're Greek or you're Korean or you're Mexicano, Peruviano, and cualquier sitio, everywhere, the gospel has come to confront. That's it. It's offensive to everyone no matter where you're from at some point. And the gospel says that our national identity is no longer our primary identity. It's now, at best, secondary our identity as God's family, as his kids, as a gospel kingdom culture is now primary and everything else flows from that. That's a confrontation. Because in light of the cross, we're all equal. In light of the cross, we're all standing at level ground at the foot saying, we need you, Jesus. And the prior culture might have endorsed that, whatever that is, discrimination. But yo, we're not doing that here. That's not, the kingdom of God doesn't operate like that. This is not how Jesus' kingdom works. And so the issue is brought to the culture, is brought to the apostles. This is pretty cool that they recognize this is wrong. Let's go get, let's go to the leaders and find out a way to fix this. And here's what the apostles do. They, they actually don't do what I might have been over tempted to do, which is like, well, if you want it done right, go, you got to do it yourself. And they just jump in and get more stuff on their plate. They actually don't overcommit. Look at verse two. It says, the 12 called a meeting of all the believers and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Okay, so I want to pause here for a second. It's not that they think that serving is somehow below them. That's not what's going on here. It, it can't be that, actually, because Jesus himself had just earlier taken his robe off before he died, got down on his knees, washed their feet, and in Luke twenty two twenty six, 26, it says, among you guys, it will be different. Speaking to the 12, those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. This was like hammered into them. I had not come to serve, be served, but to serve and lay down my life as a ransom for many. Go and do the same. And we've seen them. They have been serving. They've been giving their possessions. They have been doing all this stuff. But here's what they're doing. They're rightly recognizing this is a really good thing. We should act immediately. This needs to be resolved, but it's not for us. We've been given a clear directive from Jesus. Our job as the apostles is the main disciples. We're supposed to be teaching, praying, multiplying disciples, and empowering others. And actually, they're, they're doing what Paul writes about later in 2 Corinthians 1. They're actually recognizing that they're all part of the body of Christ, equal in value, but different in function. They're, they're equal in value. They don't think they're better than everybody, they, but they're different in function. Our function, our call, is to do this as part of the body. It's a beautiful thing in 2 Corinthians 1 about this. Um, 12, sorry. I don't know why that cut off there. My font cut off. It's a good thing. This, this meal program, this daily distribution is a really good thing, but check it out. It's not our thing. So if we overcommit here, someone else is going to be robbed 
from their opportunity to commit here and actually serve the body of Christ. And if we overcommit here, we will be undercommitted in the clear things God's told us to do, which he very clearly, directly told us to do. And so here's the first observation for this morning, if you have your hand out. Overcommitment in one area is actually undercommitment somewhere else. This is true for our lives. It's what business school calls opportunity costs. We're limited by God and his intention, and that's a really good thing. And when you operate outside of your limits and you overcommit, something somewhere is suffering. Something you should be committed to is paying the price. And I know some of you right now, some of you women especially, you're like, this is not the message my husband needs to hear right now. I, I like, like, I gladly take overcommitment right now in anything, okay? He seems not to be overcommitted about putting the dishes away. Okay. There's a few. They're laughing. Um, my wife was as well. I, um, we could, anyways. Uh. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the phrase works both ways. Check this out. Because overcommitment somewhere equals undercommitment somewhere else. Undercommitment actually reveals our overcommitment somewhere else. Example, lazy people, those good-for-nothings in the room, you know, uh, their overcommitment to their own comfort is creating an undercommitment and taking responsibility elsewhere. Undercommitment in parenting, detachment from family can be an overcommitment to work or hobby or whatever else. Undercommitment as a student could be because you're overcommitted to TikTok. Oh, wait, I was just saying. <laughs> you could be overcommitted to watching college football. No, no, actually, never mind. There's no way that's possible. Uh, you know, that's not in here. Notes. Uh, the, point, the point is not do more, do less. The, hel- the point is healthy commitment. I love the serenity prayer. If you guys are familiar with addiction circles, or recovery circles, rather, uh, it's written by Reinhold Niebuhr. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's a serenity prayer. What is that? That's, that is a healthy commitment. Lord, help me to know the difference. The things I'm supposed to be involved in, the things that are yours or others, and the wisdom to know the difference. God, help me do the things you've called me to do, and let you do what you've been here. You told me you've got handled and all that. And this is actually what the apostles do, thank God. They respond and they gather the church. And in verse 3, we keep reading. And so they say, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. And we'll give them this responsibility. Then we, the apostles, can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And everyone liked this idea. And check it out. They chose the following. Not the apostles. They chose. They chose Stephen and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa, I mean, uh, Timon, and Parmenas, uh, and Nicholas, and Ant- what are, these are weird names. Uh, so uh, the seven are presented, and then they lay their hands on them. It's cool. So the apostles take action. Um, they don't wait. They, they don't say, ah, this isn't really that big of a deal, or it'll get worked out. No, they go, this is a problem. Let's delegate. Let's, let's get involved. Let's get seven guys. Let's delegate it. And, and look at the character qualities. They say, well-respected, full of the Spirit, and have wisdom. I love what they didn't say. They didn't say, hey, find the best business guys, the most wealthy, find the most influential, find the best speakers, find the, you know, the ones with power. No, they, they, they go look at the character qualities, which the only way to know these things is if you spend time with people. You know, like when we're trying to sift out who our elders are, we're trying to find out uh, which shepherds smell like sheep. 
Because there's a lot of gifted people that don't spend time with people and actually shepherd people and get involved in their lives. In fact, some of them avoid. But, and that's where they go. Find those that you guys have all spent time with. You know they're, they're worth their salt. And so they, the church, by the way, nominates the seven. They bring them. And what we find is actually all of these names are Hellenist names. These are all Greek names. So all seven of them, the church nominates. They, the church says, you know, we, they go off. They find, like, hey, you, you guys are definitely the guys. And actually, we're going to read more about Stephen and Philip in the upcoming weeks. But as, as Greeks themselves, Greek-speaking believers, they would have understood the tension. They would have had, I think, sensitivity to what was happening in this situation. And they would have been able to advocate, for, I think, for the widows and speak their language, by the way. And that, that uh, is a really beautiful thing. All the 12 do is just go, great, we love the selection. Let's pray for them. Lay their hands. What a blessing. And because... The apostles don't overcommit here and don't force themselves into every place of importance. They create a space for these servants to step up. The Greek word for the servants here is diakonos. Some believe this is where the idea of a deacon first starts, where these, these under-shepherds come in to say, we're going to actually put our hands to the work of the church as well in a different way. And look at the immediate fruit here. This is so cool. Verse 7 says, So God's message, which Matt talked about last week, the message of life, continued to spread the number of disciples greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is the second observation for this morning. Healthy commitments lead to multiplication of gospel impact. Um, the, two, the two fruit that we see, the, the multiplicative impact that we see is, one, the greatly increasing, that people are coming to faith because of this. Luke ties these ideas together. Because they did not... It's because they delegated, because they did this. Actually, it resulted in many people coming to know Christ. The second thing, he almost sneaks in there. Many Jewish priests are converted. That's a big deal. I mean, these are the ones that have been dragging them, beating them. They just, last week, they got flogged. That's with the, you know, the cat and I, with the pieces of glass that they rip people's backs open with. These are the people coming to faith. I mean, the connection here is that faithfulness to the things God's called you to, not overcommitting, not undercommitting, but just faithful commitment actually produces incredible fruit. And the priests, these are the most hardened, most vengeful group of people you could have had come to faith in this society. And the encouragement here, I think, for us today is you may have friends that are skeptics. You have, may have friends that are haters. You know, you have, may have friends that are just dismissive of everything. Who knows where they're at? But the hope of this is no one's too far from God. It's kind of like when the, the guys get out of jail last week. It's like there's nothing God can't do, including bringing the very ones that are persecuting you to faith. I mean, there's stories of that all over the world if you read people's biographies and autobiographies. What a hope. I mean, no one's beyond reach. And I think for me personally, in light of God's sovereignty, we don't need to press you know, we don't need to live like, if I'm not doing enough, stuff's not going to happen and God can't do it. It's like, actually, we, we just commit only to what God's given to us and let him do the rest. Watch him work. And actually, that seems kind of simple, right? Like, none of this is groundbreaking observations. It's pretty simple. Here's the lesson, guys. Stop overcommitting, okay? <laughs> there it is, all right? And in Jesus' name. Um, just, hey, just stop. Okay, stop it. Stop overcommitting, all right? And then let's just all go. We're, we're done early. Right? But why don't we stop overcommitting, though? That's the question. Like, why do we stick ourselves in the rat race? 
And I think there's a couple reasons for this. I'm going to submit to you a couple meditations in my heart. One is, I think we believe the lie that our culture sells us, that if I have more, I'll be happier. And so, whether it's a product or just a, like, I'm not feeling fulfilled, so I'll just say yes to one more thing, or I'll get involved in one more thing. We, we drink that Kool-Aid of consumerism that says, you don't have enough, you need more. Products, activities, whatever, sign up for that class, do that thing. And then, and then sadly, either that's been passed to us, we pass it to our kids, or we have this idea about our kids, if you're a parent, you know, they must have everything too. So, you know, and I didn't have that, so I'm going to make sure they have you know, everything I never had a chance to have. And that justifies us driving around to endless appointments and sports teams and whatever else. We have really no time ever to slow down. No margin. No time for community. No, no time for God, really. Like, it's just, I never stop moving, and all I do is get out of my car, run in, pass out, wake up, repeat. And instead of taking the yoke of Jesus to learn his unforced rhythms of grace, we just plunge forward in this never-ending search for satisfaction. We, 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 we plunge forward trying to find life that none of those things can actually ever give us when Jesus the whole time is like, come to me. I am life. And you're not going to find it there. You've got to slow down. You've got to listen to me. I think that's one thing. I think we believe that lie a lot. We're just, if we just do more, we'll find it. But the second thing actually came in this article I quoted earlier from Psychology Today. There was a German study done, and, and the, the way that they defined overcommitment was basically this. People who are doing way too much. Man, those Germans are so creative. How did they ever nail that? Uh, overcommitted people who are doing way too much, but here's how they end that. And more specifically, that have a high need for approval for the things that they do. There it is. There it is. The need for approval. I commit because then I, I could feel good about myself. And we buy into that lie that if I just keep saying yes, if I, just keep, if I do more, I'll finally be approved of. I can look in the mirror and improve myself and say, I, I'm, someone who says, I'm someone who says yes. And I'm not like, you know, those people that say no and don't do anything. You know, I'm, I have value. Look at, all, look at all I've done. Look at what I'm doing. Or, or, or it's other people. I'll just, I will be approved of by other people. You know, they're going to pat me on the back and say, well, hey, well done, man. Killed it out there. Well done. Or they'll say, you know, I, I don't know if I would ever able to do this without you. You know, one of those comments. Or... And you feel that. I mean, I love it when people say stuff like that, right? It feels good. There's a reason it feels good. And it's not a bad thing necessarily. But when we make a good thing an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. When we start to live on that drip, because the problem is when people start to attaboy us and all that stuff, girl us, we say, ah, oh, yes, I'm approved of, I'm thought well of, until uh, till it wears off. Yeah, until it wears off. And it always wears off. And then you start to think, ah, you know, it's, it's, God, it's been a while. I don't, I don't really feel like I've been doing all that much lately. And, uh, yeah, I've been kind of been selfish and I haven't really been doing a lot. I don't really feel like I'm having much of an impact in anyone's life. And, yeah, I got, oh, man, I wonder what they're even saying about me. And I haven't been to that thing in a few weeks. And, you know, who knows what, that, uh, what they're saying about me. And the problem with living for approval from yourself or from others or even trying to get it from God, it never lasts. It's like any other addiction. It's not long before you need another hit. It's not long before you have to do something again to get that, ah, there it is, that feeling that I'm, I'm approved of, I'm valued. Uh, 
And just like every other addiction, it's built on a lie. It's built on a lie that says, if you do this, or take this, or whatever, if you do this, you'll feel better. And you will, for a little bit, until it wears off. And coincidentally, or not coincidentally, it's actually the same repackaged lie that the enemy has been trying to sell from the very beginning. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes to the first humans, and he says, if you do this, you'll be like God. See, there's something you don't have. You better, you better strive and take things in your own hands. You'll be like, God. if I do more, I'll be more. But the crazy thing about that story was, if you look at Genesis 1.27, they already were like God. Human beings were made in God's image before they had done anything. But they had been deceived to go try to find life by doing only. And the craziness of all this is that we all hate our overcommitments, our overworking, our burnout. We sense, I feel like some of you probably sense if you're in this with me, you sense, yeah, it is a lie. I, I feel the addictions. I, I feel it, when, I especially feel it on the downturns, but I can't stop. You know, I, I'm terrified of what people might say about me if, if I were ever accused of just, you know, not being there for them or if I wasn't busy enough. I, I find it funny that, that that acronym busy that I heard someone come up with was busy, B-U-S-Y, bound under Satan's yoke. It's just like that whole thing, if he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. I'll just get them so tied up and stuff, they'll never be able to listen to God or anybody else or be available. They'll just be busy. And I think it speaks to something deep in our soul that we're terrified of stopping. And we're terrified of what we might notice in that stillness. So how do we get out of this cycle of overcommitment? trying to live for approval. What's the solution? One, I think we, we have to recognize what, for what it is. It's a lie. The lie is, and the, you will never be able to find what you want in those things. Doing more will not give you lasting fulfillment and approval. That is a lie. It won't. And we have to take that lie, can't turn, it's called repentance, turning to the truth, and say, in Christ, I have everything I need. In Christ, actually, he'd come to give life and life abundantly. I need to turn and figure out I want to experience that. I'm going to turn from trying to find it here and find it here to find the approval that I long for and to come to find out I already have it. Because the truth is, in the gospel, we have the approval of the only one whose opinion actually matters. You see, we're only freed from the approval of someone, whether it's ourselves or someone else. We're only freed from the need for approval when we receive the approval of someone greater and more glorious. Let me tell you a story about this. I was, uh, my, before getting into ministry, I worked for uh, Harper Construction Company, and we were doing a bunch of military work. And I remember, actually, this story. I was in the 13 area, um, and we were doing a big barracks project and dining facility. And uh, we, there was a bunch of stuff going wrong on the site, a bunch of stuff. And our VP of construction came in, uh, my boss, and this dude just went off on everybody, right? It was one of those days where, gosh dang it, you know, this thing's going wrong, this thing's going wrong. I mean, there wasn't anyone in the room, including myself, that just didn't get ripped that day. And, I, and, he, and then he storms off, you know, he storms out of the trailer, and we're all kind of looking at each other, and we all, I go back in my office as the project manager, and I I'm, I'm just have all this anxiety. You know, I'm just filled with anxiety. I've disappointed someone. I, I, I didn't get approval. I, I got to prove my self-worth. And minutes later, my phone rings, and it's the main office. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how bad did this get? 
And so I opened up the, my phone. It was a flip phone. Remember this? You know, and I flipped it. It was one of those Nextels. And, I, I, and it's Jeff Harper, the owner of the company. And I'm like, oh, hey, Jeff. I'm going, I'm going to go, whoa. This is, oh, my God. He called, Brad called him on me? Like, what? It's not that bad. You know, I'm thinking just get destroyed. And Jeff goes, hey, uh, Tim, how you doing, man? Uh, cool. Hey, so it's, uh, it's just review time. It's bonus time. Just wanted you to know how much we value you. Um, you know, it's, it's bonus. I just want to know we're just going to give you a bonus this year. You've been doing great in the field. Everybody tells us how, how glad they are to work with you. And uh, you're going to be getting a raise. That's going to start next pay period. Hey, just want to let you know, you know, how much we appreciate you. What a great job you're doing. Hey, but got to go. Got to make a lot of phone calls. All right, see you later. Click. And I'm like, yes. You know, and I just, I was like on cloud nine, right? It, the crazy thing was like, you know, VP was mad. Owner called me, told me he likes me. And I was like, Whew, it felt like that, that chewing session that happened where it couldn't have been farther away. I was like, oh, I'm good. All right, back to work. I was, it was, you see, the opinion of VP, as important as that was, I had gotten the opinion of the owner. <laughs> and man, want to replace the approval of someone? Get the approval of a greater and more glorious opinion, one that actually has the power. And in the gospel, the the approval of the one who actually has all authority and all glory comes to us. The gospel is better than the owner of the company calling. The gospel is the father, the creator of all, the Lord of the universe, says in Christ, you're my child in whom I'm well pleased. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. You have my approval. Observation number three for this morning is the gospel frees us to commit to what matters most. It frees us. See, Ephesians chapter 2, Ray mentioned it a little earlier in verse 9, it says salvation, you can even say approval of God, is not a reward for the good things we've done. We didn't go and do so we could be approved of, so none of us can boast about it. But check out verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. The gospel relieves the burden of my identity being on the line every day in what I do. It relieves it from me. So I don't have to overcommit to get approval. I already have God's approval because of what Christ has done. I'm a masterpiece, new in Christ. What an amazing verse. Now I can commit to only the good things that he planned for me long ago. That's what that verse says. We're God's masterpiece. He created us new in Christ so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I don't have to say yes to everything. I don't have to say no to everything. But God has things for me every single day. And if I do life with him, he shows me. Not overcommitting, not undercommitting, but just committing. No more, no less, just the good things that he planned for me long ago. Pete Scazzaro in his book that I open with, he says this. He says, Jesus' greatest miracle was the resurrection. I think we can all agree. But his second greatest miracle was something he did not do. Jesus models healthy commitment for us when he refuses to use his power to come down from the cross. The temptation came and hurled insults from those who passed by. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're truly the son of God, Matthew 27. Yet what looked like a colossal failure from Jesus to the crowds turned out to be the greatest victory. The worst moment. And human history became the world's greatest moment. Those accusations will come. 
either from you or from people around you, the enemy, that will come and say, you need to do more. You're worthless. Make something happen. And we can say, no. You may even need to say it out loud. No, that's a lie. I don't. Because I'm already approved for in Christ. I have the approval of the only ones whose opinion ultimately matters. And instead of just continuing, and sometimes this can be the Christian life where we just, we're adding more and more and more stuff so we feel like we're, we're just doing enough, we're participating enough, instead of adding things to our already overloaded schedules, we can just say to Jesus, Jesus, help me to not do less, help me to not do more, but only do the good things that you have planned for me long ago. That is the beauty of our good shepherd who calls us by name. I'm not going to put random things on you, man, but you have a purpose. You have a unique purpose. You are a masterpiece, and I have things for you. And if you don't listen to me, you'll never figure out what they are, and you'll just keep running around all over the place, grabbing stuff, hoping that one of them pays off and finally satisfies. Why? Be with me. Listen to me. I will lead you. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life abundantly. Do you want to follow me? And then we can say yes. And we can say yes, not so that he will love us and accept us, but because he already does. Family, friends, you can stop trying to prove yourself. You have been proven for. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, empower us, guide us. Without your corrective hand, without your voice, we will just continue in the hamster wheel. And Lord, we don't want to just do less for the sake of doing less or more for the sake of doing more. We only want to do the good things that you planned for us long ago. So help us to slow down and listen. Help us, good shepherd, to recognize your voice. Thank you that our identity this morning, our approval is not based on the impressiveness of our commitments, that our identity is based on the undying commitment that you have made to us and will never break. Thank you that we are your masterpiece. Thank you that you've created us new in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things you planned for us long ago. Help us, Lord, to be committed to those things and experience the abundant life you have for us. In Jesus' name. Thank you.